Broadsheet Radio Network. and countrymen lend us your ears it's another episode of shared history the original if your grandfather hadn't listened to it you wouldn't be here oh i'm sorry what is that <laughs> old spice what's i was like what's the source material for that one if, if your grandfather hadn't worn it you wouldn't be here it's a sexy time thing mm, because we like we like the spice and you know what? So many of our episodes are sexy and, you know, edgy and raw. Oops, shouldn't oh, use the edgy. word raw. Yeah, raw, <laughs> just how I like my armpits to feel. <laughs> and my history. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's great. We could dawdle right here. <laughs> the idea that we're talking about things being sexy and raw gets me really excited to take you in the history machine to a convent in <laughs> uh, like oh god oh baby a 10th century uh con uh, sorry not a convent an abbey a 10th century abbey the sexiest place to be so that's where we are that's when we are because i'm here to tell you the, a story Cass. can i guess oh sure is it hildegard no it's not okay. it would be hilarious if you had prepared hildegard because these they do they are often discussed together because really? i'm okay so that was an awesome guess though can i that just... was an awesome guess to the point that i had a mild panic where i was like are they actually the same person i'm like no <laughs> i know that they are often discussed together when talking about the history of theater because i'm bringing you uh Rosvita, who is the first recorded woman playwright. No way. Uh-huh. Um, so Rosvita is the first known European woman poet after Sappho. And also, as I mentioned, the first recorded woman playwright. Because to give you some context, the theater, the art of theater was kind of cast out of the Western Christian world. It got kind of lumped in with like the dirty devil. And so it wasn't really considered a lot of, a lot of it was kind of raunchy or like low brow. And so as the Western world became even more like Christianity focused, theater kind of was thought of as like sinful and, and whatnot. So it's kind of like thrown to the side. So, Rosvita is actually kind of credited for how theater got snuck back into the Western Christian world. Tell me more. So she was a canoness, which if you don't know what a canoness is, it's like a fancy nun. Um, there's no vow of poverty, just obedience and just the vows of obedience and chastity. And also, I think you get to choose like your own wimple, like you can wear whatever wimple you want. So you can have like fashion-y wimples. Um, Say wimple one more time. Wimple. Sorry, quimple. Um, Thank you. 
so sorry. Uh, I did not mean to mis mispronounce it. So, so Rasvita also later became an abbess herself, but, but she starts her journey and she does a lot of her writing when she is a canoness. She's born in Saxony around the 10th century. And we don't really know how she be she came to take the veil, but she did. Uh, spoiler alert, she did eventually. Uh, her name literally means, because we love a name, her name literally means strong honor. Ooh, Rosvita. Mm -hmm. But she decided that it meant the carrion call or the loud cry. So she just was like, nope, this is what my name means. She's got a strong voice and view of herself. So she joins nice. a convent. The convent she joins is Gandersheim uh, in Lowers. That's the only way to pronounce things that feel that Absolutely. Yeah. It's in Lower Saxony, Germany. She joins as a canoness. Fun facts about Gandersheim, if anyone was wondering. Uh, Gandersheim was established as a free abbey, which means it was not connected to the hierarchy of the church, but to the local ruler. And by the time Prosvita joined the abbey, the abbey was completely freed, so it wasn't subject to secular rule. So it kind of could operate under uh, the church's law and then also just like the best interests of the individuals at the, at the convent, at the abbey. Remind me what year we're at again. So we are, she was born in the 10th century. So a we're 900. in a loosey timeline. So yeah, we're in, we're in the 10th, early 11th century. We don't necessarily have like really hard dates for Got it. in this particular story. Got she it. studies under the abbess and other women at the convent and becomes super well-read. But at Gandersheim, she didn't just read the Bible and church literature. What did she read? She read contemporary histories. What? And a lot of poetry by secular Latin poets like Ovid and Virgil and the comedies of Plautus and Terence. But as I said, theater was kind of saucy. Those comedies, the comedies of Plautus and Terence specifically, are a little too naughty for a nun. They're a little, a little lewd, scandalous, a little lewd, a little crude. So she decides that they're brilliant, but she does not condone, you know, the content, the the angles, the sexification right. of them. But she understands. Mm -hmm. She values. We love the I, rhyme scheme. We need less titties. Yes, less titties, but more Liddy, because she loves literature. <laughs> so she decides to write her own versions. She also wrote verse legends and histories. So she didn't just write plays. She didn't just, that's why I said she's also the first like European uh, female poet after Sappho that we really know. She wrote a history about the Holy Roman Emperor, um, Otto the first and one about her own convent. So she wrote her own convent's history, almost all word nerd in hexameter or hexameter. Oh, and a why? I don't know. I don't know enough about uh, I don't I have forgotten more than probably a lot of people did know of, like do know about Alvin um, Virgil and Plautus and Terence. I don't know if either of them wrote in a hexameter, but maybe she was inspired. 
I'm just going to nerd out. This doesn't mean matter. Blah, blah. Um, I just want to nerd out about rhyme schemes. Uh, was she speaking writing in Latin or German? You know. Because uh, I'm wondering if it was German. Because iambic pentameter is five sets of unstressed and stressed syllables. The reason Shakespeare used that is because it's na the natural cadence of how English speakers speak. So I'm wondering if it was Latin or German. Maybe it was that Latin. All of her writing was in medieval Latin. And I did just confirm uh, Virgil. Of, I don't know about Plautus or Terence, uh, but Virgil did write in hexameter. A so the obvious answer and not mine. <laughs> I mean, I in my brain, though, I think about how multisyllabic German is. And I'm like, mm -hmm. it would be difficult just because of how many syllables there are. Yeah. Uh, however. Anyway. Anyway. Well, just getting like a little nerdy. All, a common theme in all, of, in all of her writing was a battle between good and evil with the devil as a recurring character. Naturally. Naturally. So not only is she the kind of first recorded woman playwright, the first known European woman poet after Sappho. She also holds the title of kind of the first playwright of the Middle Ages, based on like when we can date it. Um, oh, wow. Like I said, all of her writing is in medieval Latin. And she is also one of the only people to record a history of women in that era from a woman's perspective. So she is also considered the first female historian. Uh. Maybe she does hexameter because she's just listing off thing after thing after mm -hmm. thing of accomplishments. And she's got a lot to say and she needs space for it. I need space. I need more space. So those comedies that I mentioned uh, by Plautus and Terence that she loved and she wrote her own versions of, uh, they're known as the Commedia Sacre, the sacred comedies because she loved comedy i just love the idea that there's this like nun who just gets fucking hyped <laughs> for like ancient greek and like latin comedies that's like a nun who goes to like improv shows all the time oh for sure she's <laughs> trying to get all of the other nuns to join her improv show and to um, do Can I get a suggestion of a prayer? Any prayer at all? Any prayer. Can I, a, a psalm, perhaps a hymn? Some, someone's I... favorite bead in the rosary? Yes, yes. anything. Uh, she she loved Terence. Terence had uh, fewer dirty jokes and adultery than Plautus. <laughs> so I think he was slightly more palatable. So, But she was so worried that her love of these comedies was sinful she wrote, uh, she had like journals and whatnot too. She wrote that she knew a lot of Catholics were attracted to the elegance and the style of, of what were called Afghan writers, but she was worried that it might tempt them away from Holy Scripture because they would rather read this like contemporary, funny, written the way that they speak or just like written in, in more common language for them, uh, comedies and plays than reading Holy Scripture. And so she warned that uh, the layperson risked being corrupted. This is, quote, being corrupted by the wickedness of the matter, because a lot of these plays were a little saucy. 
Yeah. Your little plays. Or they were written about deities that like are not part of Christianity. So yeah. So and <laughs> and when you're writing about like Greek or Roman gods, it is inherently going to have a lot of fucking. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's just the a way it's going to be. A lot of bestiality, a lot of adultery, a lot of oops, did we have sex? Oops, I didn't even notice. Like, didn't know. Uh, so she set out to write plays of her own in the vein of Terence, in meter, still comedy, but holy. Love it. Serve me up some of that. This is the, she's, she's the, she pioneered a late night catechism, the show that's been running for <laughs> hours and years in Chicago. <laughs> she did it first. The themes that she, of the, of her plays were the antithesis to Terence's shameless acts of licentious women they were about chastity virgins they were about repentful unchaste women they were about the virtue of virginity of avoiding temptation there is a uh there's a great pbs youtube video by mike rignetta about uh he does a whole series about like the history of theater and it's like these a lot of series if you don't know who Mike Rignetta is, look him up. I follow him on Twitter. I've been obsessed with him for a very long time because he used to do PBS idea channels. And it was like the best little nerdy deep dive uh, YouTube videos ever. But in he did a video about her and Hildegard. And in that video, he called it medieval slut shaming. And I love <laughs> that so much. So I'm stealing it. Like literally her plays were medieval slut shaming. But funny. But she was the first woman to do it. Cass, we have to take an ad break. Fair enough. But we're a history podcast. So we have to infuse this interlude with some tasty, tasty facts. Okay. Oh, tasty facts. Like brewing beer using hops became a standard practice as a result of early drug laws in Bohemia. Ah, yes. The Reinheitsgebot Law of 1560. I remember it well. Now that hops are no longer a legally required ingredient in beer, welcome to the future, our friends at Herbiary have taken it upon themselves to release your taste buds from the cages of convention. They've experimented with over 200 different herbs and botanicals, building on the rich tradition and fermented folklore of hop-free brewing. Learn more about their delicious section of brews and where to find them at herbiary.com. So she's a nun who's interested in why people are charmed and tempted by love and sex. So rather than avoiding it altogether, she's really interested in like why that is a theme and why that does happen to people. In a preface of one of her plays, she admits that her work makes her think about these unnameable, unmentionable things, but that she needs to understand them in order to elevate those who resist it. She wants to highlight people who like the normal average, like an average person who doesn't give in to temptation or a lustful woman who repents. So that is extremely enlightened thinking, right? I understand my enemy. I must understand the evil. Uh, instead of just what's well, further examined, instead of just being like, you're evil because someone told me you are. Mm -hmm. so one of her plays is called uh, Dulcidious or Dulcicious. Uh, it it describes the martyrdom of three young women. Hilarious. Comedy. Martyrdom. <laughs> Comedy gold. It's great. Uh, critics actually regard this as her funniest play. 
It's not her most popular, but a lot of critics regard it as her funniest. It takes place in the late third and early fourth century and is named for a governor known for persecuting Christian women. Again, comedy. <laughs> Hilarious. Uh, the young women in the play are actually based on Christian martyrs, although uh, Rosvita had to judge, fudge the timeline a little bit for them to kind of coexist with this uh, emperor and this uh, governor. Just a little, you know, creative control there. Yeah. So the plot is a little dark and pervy, but like chastity triumphs, obviously, because none playwright. So let me give you like the Cliff Notes version. Roman Emperor Diocletian wants to marry off three virgin sisters, Agape, Chionia, and Irina, but demands that they first renounce Christianity. They refuse. So he orders them imprisoned and examined by the aforementioned eponymous governor. I just pronounced it. Now I can't remember how to pronounce it. Governor Dulcidius. Uh, he says he he's he's like examining them and also is like in charge of guarding them and he sees these women and he goes oh wow we wow wow very nice and and he so, <laughs> just brought the intelligence level of this narrative down so much <laughs> but he tells his soldiers to lock them up in the kitchen to help facilitate his quote visits to them. So he doesn't have to go to the prison where they're being held. So they move them to the kitchen. Uh, they The sisters pray for help. And Dulcidius comes to visit them. And they are mysteriously gone. He can't find them. But he thinks that the pots and pans are them because it's like dark in there. So he smooches on the pots and pans. Oh my god. And he leaves the kitchen covered in soot. And the soldiers see him and think that he's possessed. The court thinks he's like a demon and he gets beat up and in retaliation, he orders the girls to be stripped in public, but they prayed and their clothes magically stick to them. So they cannot be stripped. So then Diocletian, like Dulcidius is like Diocletian, these bitches be crazy. They, he doesn't like be like, they embarrass me, but he's like, now he has an ax to grind. So Diocletian orders that the sisters be punished. Agape and Chionia are buried alive. They die, or sorry, they're burned alive. They die, but their bodies and clothes are again, miraculously left intact. So they do die, but like their body and their clothes are like, these aren't destroyed. Um, Can I just say, hilarious. Right? Comedy. <laughs> Laughs every moment. So then they use the death of her sisters to threaten Irina. She still refuses to renounce her faith. They try to make take her to a brothel. She escapes and she's been spirited away to the top of a mountain and the soldiers are incapable of following her. She is shot with an arrow while she's on the top of the mountain and she dies looking towards heaven. I want to repeat, critics say this is <laughs> funniest work. Big comedy you know what i could see this working if she took like a like a mel brooks angle you know very okay. history of the world yes. yeah mm -hmm. i can see this working if all three of the sisters and the governor are all played by adam sandler <laughs> it'll be like a real like jack jill and jill and jill situation <laughs> but they're not twins all right natalie let's get on this green light it yeah. Reboot Ross Vita. <laughs> Reboot.
bring her back. Reboot Crossvita. Crossvita. So that's her funniest play, according to critics. Uh, her play, her play uh, Gallicanus, might have been the most popular at the time, we think, be mostly because there are a lot of transcripts about it, or a lot of transcripts of it. So mm. it's copied down the most times. Um, also, you know, huge big comedy. It's about Constantine the Great seeking to marry the emperor's daughter, Constantia, Con Constantia, who ultimately also suffers a martyr's death. So, martyrdom. Very funny, haha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? We we don't see enough martyrdom comedy anymore. I mean, we're all just so weak, and we won't take the big risks that the people want. <laughs> it was a hit. Don't play it, it safe, people. In the 10th and 11th century. <laughs> Give the people the martyrdom comedies that they want. Um, Rosvita's work was actually largely ignored until it was rediscovered and edited in the 1600s. So it went away for a while after she died, lost in the wind, because it was too funny. <laughs> and in the and then in the 1970s, so jumping many many centuries, way ahead. So rediscovered and then edited in the 1600s. But actually, in the 70s, like a lot of feminist uh, theater artists began to rediscover and like recontextualize her work under a more gendered lens because it's not clear. She's, she's writing more about these themes of a repentful woman and like loyal Christian value. Well, and plays at that time are also largely allegorical. Yeah. So she's not necessarily writing these under an aggressively like feminist or like power to women lens but in yeah. the 70s uh, a lot of her work was rediscovered and recontextualized uh and yeah honestly recontextualizing them with like a gendered like feminist lens uh would not necessarily be accurate to the way they were written anyway because we know from her writing that she accepted the idea that women are inferior to men she is even very humbly in a preface essentially undermines her own work saying that it is an, a mere attempt at Terence's skill. So she comes into it, she comes into it real like, I'm giving this a go, but I'm not going to. I'm just a woman. I'm just a woman standing in front of a papyrus wanting <laughs> martyrdom to be funny. Uh, <laughs> her, her plays though, while, very chaste and uh, biblical in kind of the message and whatnot that they had weren't morality plays. So they were they were very unlike the morality plays written a few centuries later. Actually, well, those are allegorical, so I might be completely off on. I mean, hers could still be allegorical. A lot of them were like yeah. pulled from like actual events and like I said, just yeah. timelines or. When you said a night, uh, a none writing comedy plays i just immediately went to the morality plays but i guess that's you would assume so way after and morality obviously plays like a role in all of these as oh a lot yeah of them are an exploration of chastity yeah but, but it was a a format a specific type yeah 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 it was that was like a specific kind of play yeah What's uh, also crazy, if we just think about the fact that like, we're like, okay, she's like the first <clears throat> female historian. She's like this first 
poet after Sappho, uh, the first play female playwright that we know, Rosvita will not be contained in a box. So a couple of her plays <laughs> include very seemingly very long and seemingly out of place passages about things that, like I said, out of place don't make sense in the scope of the play. One is on um, mathematics and one is on the cosmos. So just How? in the middle of, I don't know, just they're just in the middle. People are like, we don't know why these are here. Um, and we also don't know actually if her plays were ever performed during her time. Many scholars say said that they were written as closet dramas, which are plays that are written to be read, not to be staged. Oh. And that is how she encountered Terence's plays. She never saw them on stage. She just read mm. them in books. So for her, that's what a play was. A play was an yeah. experience that you had like with one other person in a room reading it aloud or reading it to yourself. Now they're actually performed um, a fair amount there's a uh, group called the Gorilla Girls, Gorilla G U E R I L L A, um, that actually offered, and I think this was in like maybe 2019, maybe earlier. Um, they offered an award to any theater that would take their existing season that they had already announced and would swap out one of a Greek play that was written by a man or one of Rosvita's, they would like give that theater company an, an award for, for swapping it out. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. What if, what if they dumped Terrence to put in Rosvita? Can you imagine Rosvita's brain would not be able to comprehend that? She'd explode. She'd, ex she'd fangirl, but then also be like, you don't have to do that. You don't I'm have so to do sorry. That. I'm just, I'm just like, as my attempt at Terrence, like, uh, have the real thing, but don't invite the nuns because it's too dirty for them. <laughs> um, I also love that she just like read raunchy plays. Yeah. I just love the idea that she's like this, she's this canoness, this abbess who's like, I read what I want to read. And you know what? The only, the only problem with this is that all of it is so <laughs> sex positive. Uh, and I need a little bit more sexual oppression and, and martyrdom and martyrdom. That's what I need. <laughs> uh, there can be sex in it, but only if it is a man smooching pots and pans. Yep. Mm -hmm. That is the only thing that's okay. <laughs> and don't you dare think that those pots and pans are a metaphor for large breasts. They're not. They're not. There, pots and pans. <laughs> because that man decided that women belong in the kitchen instead of in the prison, apparently. But it is just really interesting. She she's still often overlooked in so for example, I went to a theater conservatory. I took a year-long history of dramatic literature class. I have Norton anthologies of Dramatic, the Norton Anthology of Dramatic Literature. I Norton does volumes. a great anthology. Can I just say? Yep. Oh, I love me a Norton. I every time I go through my books, I pull those out uh, and other Norton anthologies that I have out, and I'm like, should I get rid of these? When was I the last never. time I like I ever opened them? But I can't. I can't get rid I of. I can't them. do it. I don't think that my I don't think that my Shakespeare is Norton. If it is, it's a very old, it's an older edition because it's like 
I got it at like a sale shop. But so it's interesting. It's so like I said, like I went, I attended a theater school. I own all of the Norton anthologies. I took a history of dramatic literature class that took the whole year and was sometimes very dry. And I don't think I ever fell asleep in that class. Speaking of Shakespeare, that's a class I would fall asleep in because it was in the morning and I had just opened, uh, I had just opened at the coffee shop and I had just had mono the quarter before and I often fell asleep in that class and felt bad about it. But in all, like in these history of dramatic literature and dramaturgy classes, never learned about Hrosvita because Hrosvita's like drama, dramaturgy diverges from what we consider like the history of playwriting, which is male centric, more mm-hmm. war, more sex, and you know, less religion and martyrdom and pot and pan fucking. Yeah, it's an outlier, which you would think would warrant and merit more attention. Yeah. And I just realized I threw the word dramaturgy around and that's not something that everybody encounters every day. Uh, Dramaturgy is like the theory and practice of dramatic composition. So it is like the study of, of, uh, and thought and strategy behind dramatic writing and dramatic composition. Um, and that often, that obviously contains a history. Yeah. Well, damn. God, I love some good nun history. And I love uh, a well-read and an enlightened nun. Same. And I love that she just decided, I love that she simultaneously decided that her own name meant like the loud cry mm-hmm. but then also in her prefaces was like apologizing for being for deigning to write as a woman yeah i'm like you contain multitudes Hosfried. yeah and i hate that she was apologetic and like dismissive of herself but she did it you know like so many people are like well i'm i'm not a a writer so i can't do it or i'm not this or i'm not that and she was like i love this i think i can do it a different way she, she saw a need and and took a stab i also i like to think when when i read that uh they're not sure if her plays were performed i was like a little bummed because i was imagining like a bunch of nuns putting on her plays and i was in, imagining like a reverse shakespeare company situation where all of the roles male or female are played by uh nuns um yeah. which is great and that they're all in their wimples um but also when i read that it was more of like closet dramas then i imagined her plays being kind of passed around the abbey like they were like salacious like z okay yeah when you say closet drama that makes me think like we, we can't talk about this but hospitals written another one <laughs> Like she has, does like, this one have a modern a modern in it too? Oh, you bet your hiney it does. It wouldn't be a, you, a true... You bet your wimple it does. <laughs> it wouldn't be a true Rasvita if it didn't have a martyr in it. She's so bad. Oh, she's always burning her character. <laughs> Kill your gays, burn your martyrs. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that's a literary... If, People don't know the kill your gay stereotype. I just sounded very 
people in literature and movies tend to kill they off kill the gay characters. Yeah, I felt weird if people didn't have that context. Um, I love her. Thank you for bringing this saucy, saucy nun. Well, not so saucy nun into my life. Um, I want to talk to you about some people. And I'm going to ask you a question before we even get into it. Do you know who Myers-Briggs was, were of the Myers-Briggs type indicator tests? I know that I definitely have it written in a notebook from a high school psychology class. I know that we very briefly touched on it before digging into Myers-Briggs types, but I don't know. Did, did you know that they're women? <gasps> I didn't. Yes. Myers-Briggs, not only were they women, they were a mother-daughter duo. Can I just say that I love any time we ask each other if we know something and one of us acknowledges that we definitely did at one point? Because I love yes. the idea of like, do you know the saying is like, I'm, I'm positive that I have forgotten. <laughs> and I usually ask them like, oh, I'm, I want to do this big reveal, but I bet Natalie already knows about it. I don't remember anything <laughs> except Backstreet Boys lyrics. <laughs> My mind is deceived. But I will sing all of, if you want it to be good girl, get yourself a bad boy. <laughs> no, Rosvito wouldn't like that. Neither, she'd neither. Make a, she, she'd no. make a killer comedy about it. Though. She would make a, and somebody would die. Somebody would get killed. <laughs> um, I'm here to talk to you about Catherine and Isabel Briggs. Catherine Briggs uh, was born in 1875. Her father worked at Michigan State, very well educated. Uh, she went to college. She had a degree in agriculture. She never had any um, psychology or sociology training or anything, but she was just like this very intelligent woman. Uh, she married a man named Oscar Meyer, Lyman James Briggs. So I think. Her original name was Catherine Cook, and, that's, and then she went by Catherine Cook Bridge, uh, Briggs. Um, so she got married, and she's really smart, all this stuff. She did some faculty stuff. Uh, she had a daughter, Isabel Briggs. And she wrote a lot of things about raising children and best practices and how kind of kids grow up. Like, seemingly a lot of these sociological psychological things that she didn't have any training in but she was just really passionate about like being a good mom and why do kids act a certain way and how can you help that so very interested in child development personality development all of that stuff she also was uh an avid fiction writer and so she would write novels and in order to write better characters she wanted to further understand personality traits. And Natalie, you're a writer. A lot of people think when you write like a TV or a movie or a play, you kind of just sit down and start writing. But there are tons and tons of treatments of uh, character descriptions where you write pages and pages of just 
backstory and who this person is so that you know who they are in the world. And that kind of all slowly builds together all that background bullshit to then just get the story on the page a lot of times. So in order to write better, more dynamic characters, she started to study psychology and and personality and personality traits. She got onto this young feller called Carl Jung, kind of a famous psychologist, and like ate that shit up. She ended up doing a lot of like actually study and research and moved beyond the writing articles about raising children and you know I'm just learning about personalities for my novels and really started to study Jungian psychology and all of that stuff. She tried to get her daughter Isabel interested and Isabel is kind of like nah I'm good. Uh, she wasn't super interested but she again also had a love of learning. She went to Swarthmore College where she met her husband Clarence Gates Myers uh, Clarence Chief, they called him Chief. So she wasn't super interested in in joining on this like personality thing that her mom was very interested in until the 1940s. World War II is riling up um, and she wants to help the war effort. But she's like really smart. And most of the things that they allowed women to do were like secretarial work or, mm -hmm. you know, be a, a nurse where you're really just doing shit for the doctor and all that. So she wanted to put her intellect to use and she read a magazine article describing what's called the Hum Wadsworth Temperament Scale. It was a sociological test designed to place people in the appropriate type of work for their character. Sounds kind of familiar, yeah? Mm hmm We all took like a job, like a career compatibility like quiz thing, yeah. something in like high school or middle school. In high school we all took it, yes. Um, and was like a teacher or a nurse and I was like haha the arts <laughs> uh, and we're all like shit <laughs> fuck so Isabel found this you know job listing that they were doing this um, she got so excited she called her mom she's like mom oh my god you know all about this and she was really passionate about um, like helping people find the right fit, their niche within the labor force. Became very passionate about it because of this new context of, you know, it's not just mom writing characters. It's like yeah. actually helping people, their measurable results, all of that stuff. Uh, for real people, not fictional characters now. Yes. Uh, so she does that and... Her kids are all grown up, Isabel's kids, so she's like, I'm going to dive into this and started this quote-unquote people sorting tool. Uh, she started with a questionnaire. They had a ton of questions and she kind of practiced it and narrowed it and tried it on so many friends to see like, which questions do I need to, to formulate this formula? So she selected 172 of those questions, which is what the Myers-Briggs tests are. Um, they're questions that you answer about yourself and it tells you what your personality is. And based on that, you know how to communicate with others, you know, your needs, you know, your strengths or weaknesses, all of that for like 20 years, something Isabel Briggs was like tweaking and perfecting and getting a lot of data, um, a lot of people to take the test and her father, Catherine's husband was 
Michigan State University professor. So he ended up getting the test into one of the med school program things there. So all of the med students had to take it. And then they slowly started passing it out to other um, like medical universities and hospitals and all this stuff so they're slowly like disseminating this like hey take this little quiz like spreading around like a hot new quiz in like a cosmo magazine <laughs> yes yes and she approached it very systematically very scientifically she had data stats i don't you know statistics there's a lot in stats that umbrella stats stats. um and so she asked her mom to like come help out and uh catherine was like i I'm way out of my depth here. You're taking a scientific analytical approach. I will give you all the information I have on what I've studied just about personality and all that. And her mom didn't even want to be on it. She don't want to be listed in the type indicator. She's like, I didn't do anything like you're doing all this work. But Isabel insisted that it be called Myers-Briggs to include her mom because her mom did so much extensive mm -hmm. background work and all of that. So when she was working um, during the war for helping place people in the jobs, they were using the HUM Wadsworth Temperament Scale, which was, I guess, just she thought she could do it better or it wasn't getting the right information to get people in the right jobs. So that's when she started working on her own one. She's like, this one isn't working and we're going to blow it up a little bit more. So there's introversion versus extroversion versus you know, all the letters. Natalie, do you know what your Myers-Briggs type is? Um, mine changes. Yeah. It has changed. I... I'm ENFP. And I don't know what that means. I just know it means that I'm goofy. That I have ADHD. I'm I-N. I think I'm I-N-T-P. It might be INTJ. Extroverts, intuitives, feelers, judgers. INFP. I don't know. Anyway, it's 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 fun and it's gives you what I like about it best is it gives you kind of a narrowed down worldview, which sounds like a bad thing, but in response to what other people's are and how you communicate those things to other people. Sometimes all these big ideas, bunching them down a little smaller helps you kind of understand them better and then you can blow them back out again. Now, I was shocked when I found out it was two women that had created this. Yeah, I had no um, idea. Yeah, and and there are drawbacks to Myers-Briggs. It's, uh, it's, it's it's not objective at all it's a test it's based on your own honesty self-awareness like mm -hmm. natalie you said it changes you're giving your own answers based on questions so like if you're like oh i, I want to do the right answer or i think this way right now 10 years from now i think a different way so it's not yeah, mine i definitely took it in like senior year of high school and then i took it again i think i took it again after we had courtney rue on yeah. Because we had talked about that other scale and I took it then. Yeah. And I think it took it went to college and I the main shift is that I uh I shifted from E to I. I is that I yeah. have shifted and I'm I am more aware that I am actually introverted. I just present extroverted. Same. <laughs> 
Um, so there are, uh, yeah, it could change like day to day. It is so. Yes. There's, there's a lot of criticism about Myers-Briggs, um, the, the type indicator cut, but in the forties, this was new, you know, Catherine Briggs, the mom was like an ardent follower of Carl Jung. Like she reached out to him to have a correspondence. She also, oh my God, I can't believe I forgot this. She wrote erotic fan fiction about Jung. What? Like, I feel like, like Jung would have a lot to say about that. Yeah. But like fanfic in the 30s, 20s, 30s, about a famous psychologist like that's, that's so i want to read it i know i need to find it um and i will i will find it and we'll get excerpts uh so yes yeah, so like big fan big huge huge fan but neither of them had the legitimate scientific credentials so a lot of people dismiss it because of that um because it's so objective but a lot of personality tests, I mean, that's becoming huge now because it's all about communication mm -hmm. and all of that. So there are different tests, better tests, more specific tests to, you know, what you're looking for. Yeah, I don't know my Enneagram either. Yeah, that was another one where I, I took it in a really bad place in my life. So a lot of my answers were not reflective of maybe what I am. There's also just like so much going on in it like the myers-briggs test is interesting because it is these four things but in each of those things it is very binary so there's yes. a lot of different permutations of the myers-briggs myers-briggs like results or categories but each one of those characteristics is very is very binary so yeah. like I said, when I was younger, I would, I was always coming out as an, as extroverted and it does very much depend on like a level of self-awareness and where you're at. I just looked up the Hums Wadsworth model and that one is seven personality types, which I can see why people would, uh, have take issue with it, mm -hmm. um, namely based on the names of the personality types that they've listed because yeah. the personality types of the hum model is normal mover double checker artist politician engineer hustler so i feel like well do you have a desire for material success because that's that's hustler the characteristics are uses opportunities regardless of the consequences results oriented charming loves gambling good negotiators like these feel very reductive so i understand like backing it up to just the driving characteristics yeah. and naming it that way instead of like naming someone a politician or like yeah. naming someone a double checker uh, <laughs> is, I, I understand the motivation, but yeah, that's like the, the, and the Enneagram is like, I don't understand it. Somebody please write in and explain it to me. <laughs> well, and like, what am I supposed to get? That's what confuses me. Like, what I understand what Myers-Briggs is for, what it's trying to do. I don't understand what I'm supposed to be giving or getting from an Enneagram. 
Yeah. And also, I'm now even more fascinated and favorable towards Myers-Briggs because I so appreciate that it comes out of this, that it was born out of character study. Yeah. And like observing and creating re like very realistic and mm -hmm. relatable fictional characters. I was just watching or listening to an interview with an author or a screenwriter. I want to say, I want to say it was Alice Osman uh, or Osman who wrote uh, Heartstopper, the uh, graphic graphic novels Heartstopper, and also the Netflix series. Which, if you haven't seen, you should watch it. It's wholesome goodness and feels really good to watch. Um, and also, Love of My Life, Olivia Coleman is in it. Um, but it's uh, I I think it was an interview with her where she said that uh, they like to they like to know the big three for all of their characters as part of their character work and their background work that they do. They like to know their big three, their big three being their Zodiac big three. So their sun, their moon and their rising just to give them kind of um, a gut check that they can go yeah. back to and be like, would this character react in this way given not necessarily given like what they've already done, but given these kind of driving forces of their psyche. And that's another reason why with the Zodiac signs, I'm going off on a huge tangent here, but with the Zodiac signs, why people tend to enjoy them and relate to them is it's just a way to contextualize your personality. Yeah. And so for people who do get more into them, I'm gonna put it this way, people who know and understand the meaning of more than their sun sign, yeah and more than their moon like and what that is supposed to say about them that one yeah. is the way that you present to the world what other people see you as mm -hmm. so for ex example i have big leo energy but most like leo memes i don't relate to i only relate yeah. to like half of them yeah uh because like i don't care about clothes and shit, and a lot of yeah. them tend to be oriented that way fierce and then like my moon is a Pisces and I think Pisces is more of like how you see yourself or your mm. moon is like more of how you see yourself. Yeah. Um, and then I think your rising is maybe how you think other people see you. I don't remember. I'm not an expert on these. I know what my signs are yeah. and I enjoy memes. <laughs> but that's... I, I, I love Zodiac stuff. I've gotten into it. Like, and it's not that I'm like, oh, I live and die by this, or I think it's all real, but I almost did uh, the history of mirrors today. And a lot of it, there really wasn't that much to talk about. So I was like, nah, I'm not going to. Um, but a lot of this stuff is, this article is just talking about the fascination of humans and mirrors and that it's been portrayed as vanity, but so often, humans love shiny objects they love mirrors because we don't get a look at ourselves mm -hmm. it's curiosity more than anything and i think people love personality tests because we never get to meet ourselves. yeah so we want some sort of like am i like this or i think i'm like this and i want to be like this so i'm gonna hold on to those you know enneagrams and tarot cards that say i am being this way i want to be but I think it is it is just such a curiosity of who who am I outside of myself, you know? 
And that's I love that shit. That, but that's also why they're so subjective is that yeah. you're the one answering the question. Yeah. And that's you have to be like really real with yourself afterwards. Like if you if you get a result that you don't necessarily feel is accurate or you don't love, you do have to sit there and go, okay, but did I answer all of that honestly in the moment? Yeah. Like how can I and I think that's like why that's why Myers Briggs is interesting is it gives you these four different shades and it's like one of them on their own, you might be like, I don't think that I'm sensing. Yeah. I think that I'm intuitive. But in the context perhaps of being an extrovert, you're like, mm. I guess those two working together makes sense. Yeah. More importantly, what's your Hogwarts house? Gryffindor. I'm like a Griffin claw. Okay. Actually, I don't know. I have all you're the a Griffin, bad. You're a Gryffindor with the Ravenclaw rising. Actually, I think I'm a Griffin puff. I see that. Or a Puffledor. I don't know. I'm very like I've got a lot of the toxic Gryffindor traits, and a lot of the bumbly bad Hufflepuff <laughs> traits. I'm a toxic buffoon. Yes. Oh. Whoa, oh my god that's it is that a house can that be my house i love how everyone's like i'm gryffindor i'm the best and i'm like fuck i'm gryffindor i'm an asshole <laughs> oh, i love that you i love that that's what you recognize in yourself in gryffindor though, oh i have like, a huge hero complex i'm very self-righteous i am like such a team jockey nerd like go gryffindor i'm yeah, I I can't think of other things. But then I'll tell people who I like really love and admire, like I get Slytherin energy from you, Natalie, and I think that's a good thing because I'm, are... I'm I'm a Slytherin. I'm yeah. I think I'm a Slytherclaw. I'm yeah. a Slytherin. I say I'm a Slytherin with a Ravenclaw moon. Yes, so. but like I'll tell people, I'm like, oh my god, you're a Slytherin, and that's like a good thing. Sometimes there's bad Slytherin energy. There's bad all of them energy. Exactly. I will tell you what I told my son, Albus Severus Potter. You were named after two headmasters. One of them was a Slytherin, and he was the bravest man I knew. I actually told my son that. That's weird because I, you have a daughter. <laughs> I have a dog. Have a I recently watched all of the Harry Potters, so I've got them fresh in my mind. I feel like we need to do a bonus episode now where we take the Enneagram. We, we, let's do a bonus episode where it's just quiet while we take just the like, Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. You can just hear us tapping. Just a, No. Slightly. Yeah. Strongly disagree. Oh, <laughs> uh, And then at the end we'd be like, yeah, that tracks. But we don't actually reveal what it is. Uh, you can make your own like BuzzFeed quizzes. We should make a shared history one. Oh my God. Are you more of a Cass or a Nat? <gasps> <coughs> I think that answer is we need to do that. Oh my goodness. Well, um, listeners, I was going to say fans, and then that felt too self-aggrandizing. I had a real humble Hrosvita moment. What uh, a Leo. Oh, uh, Tim, at, at time of recording, tomorrow's my birthday. Woo! Hey. Um, listeners, 
I think we're going to make this quiz. I have no idea how, like what the questions are going to be, but I'm going to have a good time finding it out. And do you know what you can do to help with that? You can email us at sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com or send us a DM. Yeah. Of like a good question or like what this you This is wanna... great. This is great because our listeners can never tell us apart. And so they'll be like, I am a cast, but I have no fucking clue. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> Which one is that again? Um, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, please, please write in uh, and tell us what questions. Like we said, it's really difficult to know yourself. It's good to know how other people see you. So, um, and in our case, hear us. Hear us, yeah. So, so write in and tell us the must-have questions to create the ultimate: Are you a Cass or are you a Nat <laughs> quiz? And we'll do it. I love that. I was imagining Rosvita's gaggle of nuns. Uh, like hiding in closets and like passing her plays like they were like forbidden notes uh and then also we're talking about buzzfeed quizzes because we're talking about myers-briggs so we've basically this whole episode is just me imagining history as a cosmo magazine <laughs> because in college we used to do sometimes uh dramatic readings of cosmo magazines in our oh my god uh, that's in, amazing I, in our in our yeah in our lounge uh i we would read that read them to the boys in the uh the dorm that we were adjoining dorm <laughs> um i love this please write in those suggestions you can dm us at shared pod on instagram and twitter Send us an email, like Cass said, to sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can fill out the form at sharedhistorypodcast.com. There's so many ways to get in touch with us because we are hungry for your input. And we and love your love hear from you. Yes, and your love and validation. We're very fragile. Uh, <laughs> very fragile. Um, I am delighted beyond all compare. Cass, do you have a discovery that you want to leave us with today? I can go first. I, yeah, what I, I don't want these to always be TV shows and whatnot, but I did just finally start watching a show that one of my best friends, Sheila, talks about a lot. And I don't know why I didn't start watching it before, but it just like, she would mention it and I think I would conflate it with a different show. And I was like, I'm overwhelmed by content. I just started watching Never Have I Ever. And Oh boy, I don't watch a lot of half hour comedies. I love this show. I watched the entire first season yesterday and I need to know if our listeners are team Ben or team Paxton. I also need our listeners to know that I immediately Googled not the heights of the actors like I normally do, but their ages because with any like teen high school focused thing that has romance involved there's always a 40 year old i get so worried about like i get just so uncomfortable and i wasn't sure i knew i recognized the actor who plays paxton from agents of shield and i know that he's i like older ish older being he's our age Cass. he's like 31 and i look and i looked it up and then i was worried because i looked him up first so then i was worried about how old the uh, girl opposite him is because she reads younger than him. She reads high school age on screen. Yeah. And I was worried. It's a 10 year age difference. 
it's fine. But still, I, I had, I, I, it simultaneously. Deep breaths, Natalie, deep breaths. It made me uncomfortable watching the show, but more comfortable with how attracted to him I am. (laughs) Yeah, that's always weird being like an adult watching a high school movie. You're like, oh my God. Oh, wait. Yeah, I was, I was worried and then I was fine. And then I was worried again. Um, my discovery, I guess, is is also partly a TV show, Julia on HBO. Oh, my God. It's a Julia Child TV series. The actress that plays her is un-fucking-real. She's a British actress, Sarah Lancashire, Lancashire. Lancashire, Lancashire. You'd recognize her probably. She's in a bunch of like cop procedural British dramas, TV shows. Um, But like unreal, amazing. They humanize Julia so well. They just like bring to light how fucking hard she had to work just to get her TV show out. But my discovery in addition to that is that I can make the perfect omelet. Because the way Julia got her show was she went on a public access show to pitch her cookbook. And the guy was kind of shitty. He's like, oh, we only do real literature on here. So instead of coming in and talking about her book, she pulls out a hot plate. This is a true story. On her lap, pulls a pan and eggs out of her purse, makes him an omelet on the spot. And in the show, it's like this life-changing moment for him. He's like, oh, my oh my god and i was like oh like narratively you know he has to be impressed by her but like an omelet's not that i mean it's never that once i finished a series i was obsessed and i started watching the art of french cooking or the french chef her actual tv show and i got to the omelet episode and i was like fuck it i'm gonna try it i'm gonna make it life-changing i make the best omelet i'm coming over all right see you in six and a half hours Guys, we have to sign off because I really have to drive to Des Moines and get an omelet. I need my. It got to a point where I was forcing everyone that I saw to eat omelet. Oh, hi! Good to see you. You Want an omelet? No. Why would I want that? Don't know. You don't know. Don't. Uh, Listeners, thank you for joining us on this adventure. It was an adventure. Art and psychology, but like psychology that was like manifested in art for the purpose of art which i love erotic union art yeah fanfic art and you know less erotic martyrdom comedies there's a lot of a lot of things that (laughs) contradict each other in this episode i look forward to seeing you next time on shared history until then share you later